welcome to the podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, like Lucifer, Hellblazer, Transmetropolitan. And welcome to a Vertiguys number one. This is our first episode of Transmetropolitan. Yeah, and that makes it our first Warren Ellis comic book. So it is. I have had my disagreements with Warren Ellis over the years. He's cynical. I'm a romantic. He favors heroes that kill. I think codes against killing have their place. I can think of at least two things that he's done that I really liked. Them being? The recent Castlevania animated series. So good. And the Excalibur, like the caliber of a gun mini for Age of Apocalypse. He was writing Excalibur at that time. Right, so he wrote the Age of Apocalypse tie-in. When Age of Apocalypse took over every X-Men book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That was a good series. I remember. So he's... He's a good writer. I have disagreements with him on philosophical terms. So let's put it that way. This is a little bit of a tangent, but since you ostensibly must agree with him that James Bond does kill people, then you must like him as a James Bond writer. Oh, for fuck's sake. I forgot about Warger, which I think is a very bad comic book. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, you're so wrong. But let's get into Transmetropolitan <laughs> number one. The story is entitled The Summer of the Year, written by Warren Ellis. Pencils by Derek Robertson. Derek Robertson! Derek Robertson is like the other big talent that we have to talk about in here, although as far as what he's famous for, it's like primarily this, right? And the boys. Yeah, the boys. But that was that was later, right? That was later. Yeah. Inks by Jerome K. Moore. Color and Separations by Nathan Ehring. Lettered by Clem Robbins. Stuart Moore is credited here as Whorehopper. <laughs> <laughs> He's the editor. Associate editor Julie Rottenberg. And special thanks to Andre Ricciardi. Andre Ricciardi is a friend of Derek Robertson, and it turns out he's the physical model for both bearded and cleaned up Spider Jerusalem. Oh, neat. The cover is by Geoff Darrow, and we have Spider. In this printing, his skin is paper white. Although, I've seen images of the actual cover as it was published, and he wasn't so incredibly pasty at that time. Okay. Uh, he's standing in a pile of cigarettes, burger wrappers, magazines, and beer cans, smirking at the camera, and behind him we can see The City. The City is spelled with a capital letter. Right. Maybe it'll be like a thing where we'll never find out its, its actual name. Right. I wouldn't be surprised if, given that it's the future and the city seems to be massive, that it's actually like a metroplex that encompasses several former cities. There's dialogue that establishes later on that's pretty clearly in the United States, but that's like all we know. Right. Before we get too far into this, it may be worth noting that Transmetropolitan may be a Pogues reference. Okay, go on. It's the name of the first track on their first record. Oh, all right. So we open up on a column, I Hate It Here, by Spider Jerusalem. The column contemptuously describes some very weird transhumanist stuff. It's unclear how much Spider is exaggerating in this column and how much is just what it's like in the city. It mentions that he's back after five years away from the city, and he mentions being driven away by the death of truth. <laughs> wow, it's like plucked from today's headlines. <laughs> Shit. But now he's back, and he ends the column with, If you loved me, you'd all kill yourselves today. Most of this column is... Pretty okay, if wild, although there's a line here about a transhuman security whore that's maybe a little misogynist, and then there's his doormat having a Mexican accent, which is probably kind of racist. Probably kind of racist. Yeah. 
I mean, we might have to dive deeper into this later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the kind of the way that like transhumanist stuff is kind of played as you know bizarre and a little bit unsympathetic, and the way that Spider Jerusalem hates it comes off a little like anti-trans. Oh yeah, most definitely, and that's something that we will want to talk about later. Okay, so we'll put that on the on the back burner for now. Yeah, and I think this issue is the first of a three-part story arc. We're only covering part one today. Right. Once we get through the full story arc, we'll be able to talk about the quote-unquote transient movement in full context. Okay. I, I do think that, like, the way that he is constantly irritated with the weird stuff that he sees in the city, and he often attaches a nationality to that weird stuff, it feels kind of like, I was really annoyed that I walked outside and saw a Russian and a Mexican. Yeah. It's a little bit like John Rocker. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll explain it in the show notes. Okay. And then narration tells us that we're up a goddamn mountain. Yeah, and Spider Jerusalem is on the phone with his editor, who we are told is a whorehopper. We are also told that he's thick-lipped, which is, again, probably racist. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the uh, the editor is informing him that his ass is going to be sued if he doesn't produce the two goddamn books that he was given a huge advance for five whole years ago. I was going to say, this is where we are introduced to Alan Moore, I mean Spider-Jerusalem, because he is scraggly and beardy as fuck right now, and also completely naked. Oh yeah, that's true. Naked except for his cocoon of hair. Yes. He considers fighting his way out of this contract, but he has bartered away his money and guns for, quote, drugs, food, and cable TV. The uh, opiates of the masses, I guess. He can get both books done in a year, his editor argues. At this point, Spider picks up Han Solo's Blastech DL-44. Yeah, I just said Han Solo's gun, but I counted on you to know more than that. Yeah, he has Han Solo's gun here. He also has a $5 bill with the words buy more bullets graffitied on it and a dead mouse attached to it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how a dead mouse gets so thoroughly attached to a $5 bill, but they do seem to be inseparable. One of the books has to be on politics, the contract says, and he can't write about politics from a distance, so he's going back to the city. I decided to be depressed for a while. <laughs> yeah, he um he tries to shoot the phone with the blast tech before the editor hangs up, but fails. So he mopes for a while and prepares to go back. Yeah, we get our title page here. He's put some clothes on. He looks like a proper old dirty hippie. Yeah, he's loading his stuff into the car, and I think as we get our title here, this is the first look we get in the printed comic at the Transmet emblem, which is a smiley face with three eyes. Yeah. He narrates a bit here that he's spent five years away from the city violently defending his solitude. Is there a dead woman in his car? I think it's a mask or a mannequin or something. Okay. I fucking, I fucking hope so. I fucking hope so, yeah. yeah. Five years of shooting at fans and neighbors, eating what I kill, and bombing the unwary. So, he's the Unabomber? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's coming back to the mountain once he's dealt with his obligations. He's worked too hard for this place to give it up. We'll see about that. Right, yeah, and he leaves booby traps so that no one else can move in. Once I'm gone, the security systems will reboot and the Ebola bomb under the toilet will arm. Journalists do not cry, and I am a fucking journalist. Again. Now, as he passes by on his way down the mountain, he sees a bar called Bastards. Mm-hmm. That's with an apostrophe. It belongs to a bastard. Yeah, yeah. And he pulls out a rocket launcher and blows it up. If I'm miserable, then everybody's miserable. 
I wonder if there were people in that bar. Well, <laughs> we need to come back to the issue of Spider's casual violence. Yes, I'm sure that'll be a thing we'll have to talk about. It. As he drives, he drinks, and he starts narrating into a tape recorder. He narrates a bit of his backstory. He became a famous journalist thanks to his book on an election, which is called Shot in the Face. Yeah, and we are going to learn that somebody named The Beast was elected president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And likely that is the same election, I think. Yeah, I think so. As he comes into the city's radio range, he starts to get news. Secession movement on Mars, Pylon 9 today degenerated into gunfire, with the rebels threatening to hold a roof. Religion capping just won't work, Mike. You can't stop the people from inventing new ways to pray. Spider passes through a toll booth to enter the city. There's a calendar here labeled Sex Puppet, which depicts Ernie from Sesame Street reaching for a naked woman. <laughs> oh, yuck. In one panel, Ernie has his shirt on, but in the next panel, it's gone. Does the calendar change? Well, it could just be a color error, but... It could be a color error, or the calendar could be some kind of future calendar that, you know, the picture changes. He curses the toll booth attendant for having a modicum of authority over him. I'll be back for you, shit-eyes. Yeah, for having a modicum of, of authority and for enjoying lording it over people. Right. And then he hands him... The toll is $5, and so he hands him the $5 bill that says buy more bullets and has a dead mouse attached. He somehow hands it to him with his middle finger and also hands him the mouse, because like I said, the mouse is, seems to be quite <laughs> thoroughly attached. This would be a little more believable if it was just a little closer to the rest of his fingers so he could have it pinched between. Yeah. Of course, he'll have to get a job while he writes the books, and journalist's insurance. I haven't worked without insurance since that time the Red Catholics dropped the auto-cannibalism meme on Carroll Square. I still can't eat pork. And we get some views of the city as he's driving in. Almost full page here, and this is really, I think, the strength of Derek Robertson's art. Lots of gritty little details. Yeah, it looks so good. It looks so busy and so familiar and alien at the same time and so like uniquely itself you and know it's, it's so full of little details that you can pick apart to get a sense of what the city is like right we see that there's pornography on one of the billboards he passes by an establishment that bills itself as a sex pub yeah this is one of the things about the city i guess is that the Sex and pornography have gotten really extreme and are advertised everywhere. Right, yeah. Just extreme and ubiquitous. We hear a news report on the transients. That's what they're called. And we get a look at them, too. They're part people, part Roswell Gray, split down the middle of the face, because that looks sillier. <laughs> right. A transient demonstration has closed the road. So now looking more like Patrick Rothfuss than Alan Moore, Spider decides to walk the rest of the way. Huh. Yeah, there's a billboard here that seems to have Big Bird smoking a cigarette. Right. And as he walks, he describes the overwhelming smells and sounds of the city, the sensory overload. A Kenyan man once said to me, You can get used to anything when money is involved. He used to stick mice up his ass for 20 bucks a time. It's like coming out of sensory deprivation or waking up from a really nice dream and finding yourself naked on a busy freeway. Get off my fucking car! With mice up your ass. There's a line here about feed sites capturing video of random events. A couple of singers just belting it out on the side of the road. Tuvan throat singers. Yes, capturing these events for the masses, which is kind of oddly prescient. Yeah, that's basically what YouTube and lots of other social media is. People just kind of go around with their phones recording things. They put it on the web, and sometimes people like it. 
Yeah. The one thing I think is not prescient about it is that Warren Ellis probably pictured the guys recording these feeds as monetizing it somehow. Whereas, you know, in today's world, people are basically doing that, but they're essentially doing it for likes, you know? They're doing it for yeah. for social fun. Social sort cred. Of, yeah, exactly, social cred, and basically being tricked into generating content for mega corporations for free. Hmm. Yeah, but the idea that, like, unique and ephemeral moments would become something that is... That is... Yeah. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> it's a generating content for mega corporations for free. Vertigas! <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that, like, unique and ephemeral moments... Have been commodified and monetized? Or not even monetized, so much as the, the idea has come about that they can't be let go, that they have to be preserved in some way. Mm. Is very... I think, prescient of YouTube. Right. There's a mention of lovers, two men, from I a th- Chinese culture reservation. Put a pin in that. So there's two and throat singers, feed site listeners, dissenters from the Chinese culture reservation, Russian security werewolves, prostitutes. The city never allowed itself to decay or degrade. It's wildly, intensely growing. It's a loud, bright, stinking mess. It takes strength from its thousands of cultures, and the thousands more that grow anew each day. It isn't perfect. It lies and cheats. It's no utopia, and it ain't the mountain by a long shot. But it's alive. I can't argue with that. Anyway, Spider arrives at the office of The Word, the newspaper where he used to and presently will work. I'm here to see Royce. He works on the city desk. Old friend of mine. I don't think so. Don't let the door hit you in the beard on the way out. Between panels, Spider apparently roughs up this reception guy. Yeah, and then he tosses grenades into the cubicles as he bolts past reception and runs for Royce's office. Damn it, I'm a professional man. I don't have all day. So as he bursts into Royce's office, he jokes about breaking Royce out of this prison. My god, they've caged him. Christ alive, man, this place is a snake pit. We've got to get you out of here. That is so Hunter S. Thompson of a thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we've used the phrase gonzo journalist yet, but it's going to be used a lot to refer to Spider. Spider is very Hunter S. Thompson inspired. Royce, it turns out, is a pretty ordinary-looking, pudgy guy with a goatee. I still work here, Spider. I'm the paper's city editor now. Well, excellent. I need some work, Royce. Guess you can fix me up. Not that you're city editor, huh? City editor to all points. Stand down. I repeat, stand down. Please cancel any requests made to the police. All is well. They talk plot. Spider wants a job. Royce offers him stress manager's brand cigarettes. Have another. Royce would be glad to have the author of Shot in the Face and Waving and Drowning writing a weekly column. That'd be a bit of a coup. Spider demands insurance in an apartment with a maker and base block. We're going to hear more about that. Royce agrees, but he demands the first column tomorrow. 8,000 words. Printable words. I still remember that essay you wrote when the Beast got elected. I do not want to see the word fuck typed 8,000 times again. Have you noticed that his Han Solo gun has changed colors? It's red now. Yeah, it was black when we saw it before. Maybe it's like a mood ring. Okay. Wouldn't it just always be red? I mean, this is Spider we're talking about. (laughs) Well, especially if he's pointing a gun at something. (laughs) Royce wonders why Spider moved away, and uncharacteristically unhyper, Spider says, I couldn't get at the truth anymore. Yeah, so he makes his way to his new apartment that he successfully managed to strong-arm Royce into getting for him. It is not a nice place. He complains that it's a hovel and in a poor neighborhood. 
He clouts a kid on the ear and makes him run to the pharmacy for him for drugs. I want vasopressin, washed caffeine, jumpstart, ginkgo biloba, guarana, and any intelligence enhancer introduced in the last five years. You some kind of health freak? I'm a journalist, damn it. Now jump to it, pusher sperm. I'm in apartment 100K. He steps into what he hopes is the shower. It corrects him and says, Voice keyed physical cleaning unit. Good enough. Clean me right down. Yeah, and it takes all the hair off him. Ah! Yeah, so this turns him into the spider that we will know for the rest of the series. Bald, heavily tattooed. He's got a spider tattoo on his forehead. There's also a line here about the phone being out, which is going to come back in the next issue. Do you want to talk about the maker? Yes, let's talk about the maker. So this is a high-tech fabrication machine. Base block apparently means just like a, an amount of stored matter that it uses to make shit. Right, he said that without one, he'd have to go up and down the streets collecting garbage to feed into it. Mr. Fusion? That's exactly where my mind went. And I am not a big fan of Back to the Future, but it's still exactly where my mind went. The I am a God T-101 maker. I recombine matter into any of 25,000 different forms. I am fueled by a base block of super-dense neutral matter suspended in a drift vise, also holding the fuel conversion that allows me to use garbage or other unwanted matter. And I am not your fucking ashtray. So it's a God T brand, which means it's mob-made and has the face and personality of Don Corleone. He goes Corleone. Corleone? Corleone. I've never seen The Godfather. Yeah. In the second movie, there's like it's like a plot point. It's a plot point that somebody doesn't know how to pronounce Corleone? Somebody's pretending not to know how to pronounce it. Fascinating. In order to piss them off. Yes. I gotta see this film. <laughs> so, what he wants from the maker is a black linen suit and a pair of live shades, which are sunglasses with built-in cameras controlled by his optic nerves. This is the rest of his iconic look. The shades he gets are mismatched. One eye is little green and rectangular, the other is big, round, and red. And this makes him look like he's squinting with one eye and agog with the other. Uh, he also has the maker make him a suit. A black linen suit. Urban weight, generous cut. And when he sees the shades, he realizes that his maker is on drugs. What's your problem? Heh. Huh. Huh. Let me have a look behind you here. No, don't do that. What's this, Tripwire 7.0? I know what this is. This is a hallucinogen simulator for live machinery, isn't it? My household appliance is on drugs. Horrible. Ah. He asks his computer and TV for news. Yeah, he asks for a random channel change every 20 seconds and a random news feed switch every 25 seconds. So again, we're continuing this theme of, like, sensory overload. Right, he's deliberately calling up a sensory overload from his news sources, and that's apparently how he'll find the best thing to write about. Yeah. There are mentions of cryo-frozen people from the past, people who've downloaded themselves into nanomachines. And then we hit on the transient demonstrations. After the ugly conclusion to the transient rights demonstration on Gaines Street this afternoon, CPD had only this to say, wanting a new body doesn't give you the right to be a public nuisance. It seems that most, if not all, of the city's transients have returned to the Angel 8 district, where the unrest began. Movement leader Fred Christ made himself available for interview just a few minutes ago. Fred, TV whole channel. We see Fred speak, and we learn that the transients inject themselves with alien DNA from the alien colony in Old Vilnius. Vilnius is the capital of Lithuania, and in a city-esque twist, is in the news this week for an ad campaign calling itself the G-Spot of Europe. That's amazing. <laughs> it's the, <that> <laughs> Whoever came up with that tagline, they're not making enough money. <laughs> 
From what I've heard, the ads are suggestive, but don't actually cast the city as a place for sex tourism. Still very risque, and, and very much like the ads that we see in the city in the comic book. Yeah, that is... Wow, apropos. Good thing we ended up doing Transmetropolitan this week. Yeah. Transience is all about the right to change your species. With a change in species comes a change in perspective, and a change in needs. Simple fact is that Civic Center couldn't care less about us or our needs. So following the police's actions during the demo, we have come to a decision. We have gathered here to effect the secession of the entire Angels 8 district to the Vilnius Colony. Fred, you little weird bastard. You're my first column. Sweater narrates as he heads out, planning to walk the short distance to Angels 8. I hear the Kodo drumming from the Japanese island a few blocks south, the sound of a village gathering its people home for the night. Laughter up the street as the nightclub gates melt open. The taste of a city cigarette, smooth and fat. A brief clatter of gunfire, the sound of a couple having sex they've waited for the whole day. The jump of caffeine in my fingers, the crackle of intelligence enhancers in my head. There'll be a taxi for me at the end of the street, because that's just the way things are. City under my feet. Home again. Alright, a fair amount to unpack there. Yeah, I want to start by saying that that is a remarkably good comic book. Okay. <laughs> because, like, we're going to have to criticize it a lot. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of undertones to it that uh, I don't approve of. Mm -hmm. And that I think, you know, bear unpacking. They're, they're problematic. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, to get it out of the way, it's an experience. Yeah, and... I mean, I guess we, we're going to come back to the full understanding of, like, how can a comic book about gonzo journalism be a comic book? But it works on that level. Right. And this issue is also really effective, I think, at establishing one of the core themes or conflicts of this series. Spider hates the city, but he's also only really alive when he's in the city. Right. He depends on it for his journalism. His journalism is almost an addiction for him. And so they have a symbiotic love-hate relationship. Yeah, and when we see him on the mountain, he's just kind of gone to seed, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. He describes it as peace, but he also, he's not doing anything with himself. Right. Have you seen the Veronica Mars movie? No. Yes, I've seen the movie. Okay. Not season, season four. You haven't seen the new season. So this kind of reminds me of the Veronica Mars movie, how Veronica wants to get the hell out of Neptune. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, basically have a life of peace and happiness yes but she realizes that like she needs to be in the city so that she can fight the good fight well yeah and by the end of that film i think veronica's detectiving or adventuring sorry to spoil the fuck out of the film here um is portrayed as something of an addiction well it's i think the last line of the movie is my name is veronica and i'm an addict <laughs> yeah so <laughs> so yeah it is um it is not necessarily something that should be a part of her but it is something she can't live without yeah, and Spider's relationship to the city and the work that he has to do there is, I think, very much the same. Right. The city itself is a wonder of imagination, but also fairly conservative in some ways, in that Ellis, through Spider, expresses contempt for many of the things on offer in the city. Yes, I, I definitely feel that. Warren Ellis actually comes off as, like, kind of reactionary okay. <laughs> in this issue or at least he's kind of putting a lot of like he's putting a lot of reactionary kind of thoughts into spider's head yes he's also of course the one who came up with all this you know this vast diorama of humanity yeah well that's right 
Spider as a hero is a morally gray hero, and that's going to come back over and over. I do not think that we are meant to take 100% as endorsed everything that Spider does and says. For sure. But at the same time, he is to some extent the voice of reason on the city. Yeah. And it's worth noting, this, I think, came out in the 90s. 97. Yeah, so... So 97, I think that misanthropy was kind of much more of a countercultural virtue at that time. You know, nowadays, nowadays we kind of associate that deep cynicism with like conservatives and reactionaries. But Mm -hmm. I think that in the 90s, misanthropy and deep cynicism were seen as more kind of rebellious countercultural virtues yeah i think that's fair and and he is english of course right that's true but yeah you had sort of mentioned and again we'll have more context to discuss this after two issues that the way that transients are portrayed or, or the way that spider transhumanism in general is portrayed is comes off as kind of anti-trans yeah and the fact that they are called the transients which is both a word that means homeless people yeah and it contains the word trans which by itself wasn't, I think, as heavily used to mean the sure. group of people back in 1987. Right. It's not my favorite, and if it bothers you the way that is portrayed here, I'm on your side. Right. And I think that's all we can say until we've seen the full story. Right. The other thing that I think does not age well is the ultraviolence. Yes. You've got Spider Jerusalem... You know, he's running through an office building, throwing grenades into cubicles. He's blowing up his favorite neighborhood bar with a rocket launcher. Yes. I think, you know, in the 90s, maybe this played as, like, a little bit more kind of cartoonish yes. and, like, wacky hijinks. But we're we're living in a society now where there's more mayhem in our lives. Okay. Or at least we're more conscious of it. And so it just doesn't seem so funny anymore, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah, and we don't see any consequences of the violence, so we're not supposed to think of them. Right. Right? Like, we don't we don't see anybody die in the bar that he blows up. So Ellis wants the joyous irresponsibility of a character who thoughtlessly flings death around, but without it actually affecting the story or who that character is. Right. He's Bugs Bunny. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And Spider himself is something of a problem at this point, because he's so rude, so dismissive, so violent, and we haven't really seen his redeeming values yet. Yeah, and I think that that's intentional. He doesn't come off fully sympathetic in this issue, but he's not meant to. Right. He has to be redeemed. Yeah, uh, Spider is and will remain, at least for the first several issues, to some extent, like an asshole's fantasy of getting to be an asshole without consequences. (laughs) Right. But that's not something the comic is entirely unaware of. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, there you have it. That is the very complex... Very morally dubious first issue of Transmetropolitan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I remember what we said about, about Preacher back in the New York story arc, that, like, yes, it was offensive, but I don't think it was really intended to attack anyone. Yeah. Just, it, it was intended to offend parents more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if that if that holds up, but that's a way of thinking about this. Yeah, maybe not intended to offend parents, but intended to evoke in teenagers a sort of sense of rebellion that they so richly need. Yes. Yeah, and it, it, if nothing else, this provokes a reaction. Yeah. You will get a reaction from reading this comic book, which you won't entirely like. Yeah. Now it's time for a segment that I like to call Whatever a Spider Can, 
in which we discuss the most implausible ability possessed by Spider-Jerusalem in this week's comics. Well, I think you know what my vote is going to be. It's got to be the moment when Spider-Jerusalem somehow affixes a rat to a $5 bill <laughs> and then hands it to someone using only his middle finger. It could be done, but with like a lot of tape and it we don't see the preparation because that's not cool. Right, yeah. <laughs> What's yours? Well, my answer is, if everybody can obtain deadly weaponry as easily as Spider can, that there is no way that he can go around insulting and threatening everyone to their faces the way he does and not get shot. Spider's most unbelievable ability in this issue is still being alive. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, truth. Now it's time for a segment I like to call, Hey Sean, Read This. What? Where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. Of course, there are no more Vertigo comics. DC gave them the axe because they're a bunch of fucking idiots. <laughs> but DC Black Label has just put out, I think it's Sandman Presents Hellblazer number one. Yeah, so it's part of the Sandman Universe initiative, which did not get totally killed by the death of Vertigo. Right. Yeah, all right, Sean, get to reading. So I will read this and rejoin with you in a moment. Yes. You must entertain the internet while I read this. All right, let's just go to break. <laughs> It's harder on me, but whatever. <laughs> okay, this is Sandman Universe Presents Hellblazer number one, the best version of you, written by Cy Spurrier, art by Marcio Takara, colors by Chris Peter, letters by Aditya Bidikar, cover by Bilquis Evely and Matt Lopez, variant cover by Declan Shelby. I think this is the variant cover, This is right? the Declan Shelby cover. Okay, and um, And also, you, you call him Cy Spurrier. I call him Simon. I, I dislike when people call him Cy. He used to be credited as Cy fairly a lot, I thought. Oh, well, maybe. Do you want me to just say Simon, or do you want to have the argument in there? No, I want to berate you on tape. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> on this cover, we have Constantine with his hands spread like, I don't know, maybe he's about to do a magic trick, or he's showing you he doesn't have anything up his sleeve. And he's grinning, and he's got smoke pouring out of his mouth, and in the smoke, there are two versions of Timothy Hunter fighting each other. I thought it was Harry Potter. When I say in the smoke, I mean literally the cigarette smoke from his mouth, not the city of London. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, so this comic book opens with everything going completely to shit. In some unspecified future time, Constantine is fighting all kinds of badness. What's the line here? It's the last mage war of the age. Something yeah, like that. yeah. He says something ate the sun half an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. And there's like an evil monster sun in the sky. So that's pretty cool. Right. Hmm. Like a monster moon. <laughs> he keeps complaining. <laughs> he keeps complaining that he hates the flashy stuff. Anyway, Chaz shows up with a pig's head, which is apparently a, a, a vital necessity to have. Right. And Constantine tells him to go to Nelson's column, which is where he'll, he'll be able to use the pig's head to stop all the badness. And Chaz is, like, aggressively not asking any questions here. He's just like, you're Constantine, you know exactly what to do, I will do it. Right. I am gonna help. Right. So Chaz takes off. It turns out Chaz is a distraction. He is killed by demons. Shortly. Killed by demons. Yes, shortly. <laughs> you have to explain that now. Shortly after that, Zatanna dies. Etrigan dies. All of John's ghosts show up, although I don't really recognize them as being specific ghosts. Me either. John uh, is wounded by a piece of shrapnel from the explosion of Chaz's cab and crawls into a shop, into a pub, to try to sleep or to die. He is interrupted by two, I think two, Timothy Hunters. 
both from the past, I guess. And Timothy Hunter's kind of, what's going on? And John's going, look up, look up at the big bad evil guy in the sky. Right. And it is Timothy Hunter. Which this is consistent with Timothy Hunter's origin story in Books of Magic. He is going to be the decisive figure in The Last Great Mage War, and nobody's sure which side he'll be on. Right, yeah, this is not really a spoiler. This is kind of what it says on the tin as regards Timothy Hunter. Yeah, so anyway, Constantine says, not my scene, as he trails off to die, but then he is interrupted yet again by the arrival of an old man. Well, he's interrupted yet again this time by the arrival of an old man. Last time it wasn't an old man. Yeah, right, right. A dangling modifier there. So the old man offers John a deal, his soul for surviving this fuck-up, basically. This is a cool part. The old man knows stuff about John, stuff he should not know. When I was six, I took a pair of scissors to a little grass snake in a garden. You cried, but kept cutting. Thirteenth birthday, I spent an hour. Trying to get your own todger in your mouth. Fell off the bed and split your lip. And... And before you ask, night bus back from Chalk Farm. Kit fell asleep on your shoulder. First time she did that, you whispered, till the heavens fall down, right near you. You were lying. Ah, uh, that gets me right here, because he has just broken up with Kit and the Hellblazer issues that we're reading. And also, till the heavens fall down is such a Garth Ennis thing for him to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To the woman he loves. So, thinking he's figured out who this is, Constantine burns his palm of his hand with his cigarette. Indeed, it works. The burn appears on the old man. This is... Constantine from the future. Which is weird, because he's about to die, and also the world's about to end. <laughs> Indeed. Constantine from a future. Yeah, so... John accepts the deal, and is transported from this flashy stuff. At this point, there is a Snickers ad featuring Batman, which, since this is a Hey Sean, I won't go into the whole thing, but it's actually a pretty good Snickers ad. <laughs> Traveling through time, John already doesn't believe that this happened. He's like, oh, this is bullshit. He wakes up in Ravenscar in the mental hospital. The mental hospital where he was tortured because they thought that he was a child murderer. Yeah, yeah. It is not clear where in his life he is, but he calls for an orderly and gets a conversation with a doctor and effectively fakes a conversation with the doctor to get released from the mental institution. Yeah, he enchants the doctor. Yeah, this is a pretty cool bit. We've sort of seen... Well, we were just saying in the last Hellblazer episode, I think, that we're seeing this for the first time. John sort of actually tricking people using magic, getting them to believe that something is being said or going on that isn't what's really going on. Yeah. And so he has this exchange with the doctor. Question regarding patients' violent tendencies. Answer expressing shame. Listing management strategies numbered from 1 to 10. Voice deeper. More melodic. So, yeah, this is not quite what's happening. He's giving the doctor an impression of a conversation that would result in his release. Right. He gets out, he heads to London. He is horrified to discover that the surface where the shallow fuckers like me live, fuck, it's, it's, it's clean. Like a morgue without a corpse. 2019. It's 20 bastard 19. So even though he's been in Ravenscar, this is not young John. This is present day. Right. And he's already starting to lose his memories of the future that he experienced as the edges are filed off to fit into the memories of this Constantine. Tell him about the Brexit sign. Oh yes, John has seen a sign that says Brexit Party delivering the will of the people and has crossed out people to write racist blame junkies and actual fucking Nazis. 
I wasn't sure if he did that or if he just found it that way, but yeah. <laughs> I just like that Simon Spurrier put that in there. He's not sure where to start, so he goes to find Chaz, and Chaz, it turns out, is not in his home. He's gone to the hospital, and his family's been evicted. And this is where he has another sort of imaginary conversation with an old lady to get directions to the hospital, and he uses a phrase again that he used with the doctor, counting downwards from ten which I thought had to be a reference to Hellblazer number 51, counting to 10. That's the one in the laundromat. Oh, I thought it was just like a like a hypnosis enchantment thing. Okay. He counts backwards from 10, and by the time he reaches one, you're not conscious, you know? Right, right. It could also just be a reference to something in Constantine issues that I haven't read, because there have been a lot of them in between where we are and right now. Word. John finds his way to the hospital where Chaz is interred. He finds Chaz's body surrounded by demons. They have all basically figured out that Chaz is Constantine's oldest friend and are waiting here for Constantine to come back. Yeah, they call him his minion. Yeah, it's also mentioned that he's been gone for a really long time. Which, maybe John has quote-unquote been gone since Hellblazer 300 and, and the Constantine issues in between don't count. Yeah, could be. So John starts to use some symbology to draw the demons into another patient in the ward, but Chaz's ghost appears and stops him, saying basically, you know, first of all, don't do that terrible thing to that, uh, old, lady. that old lady, but also, like, it's not worth it, man. And right. it turns out that in addition to being possessed by many demons, Chaz has lung cancer, very terminal, he has about a month to live, and it turns out that even though Chaz never smoked... It's from John Constantine blowing smoke at him. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what a guilt trip. Took me years, but I worked it out. It ain't the tumor that killed me, John. It's you. You're poison. Fuck, man. So John takes off. He's thinking about how madness is the only constant in magic. How if there's nobody left to care, what's to keep you on the on a straight and narrow? But he recalls something that Shaz said in the future. Come on, John. There's being loved. Then there's doing what's right. And you know they ain't the same. So as he's looking at a trench coat like his trench coat in a window, he thinks about fucking off to some place north, finding a nice pub, but instead he throws a trash can through the window, steals the trench coat, and is ready to go to work. And then... He delivers his iconic line. The line that we saw in... Or that we will see, I suppose, in Swamp Thing in his first appearance. I'm a nasty piece of work, Chief. Ask anybody. But as he leaves the scene, a voice from the shadows says, Nasty. Huh. Nasty piece of work. Not my scene. All those little sound bites, like you can build your own story. Like armor against what's real. Oh, John. It's relative. It's all relative. None of it really means anything. You have to know that. You have to know you had it right the first time. Madness is the only constant. And it's old man Constantine. Okay, so what do you think? Well, now it's a hey, Sean, and I'm supposed to tell you what I think, but I'm asking you now. I didn't love it. Okay. Even though it was written by a British writer, John Constantine's voice didn't seem quite right to me. It seemed a little heavy and self-conscious on the Britishisms. Well, it, and it's very heavy on the... Who is John Constantine? How does he feel about the magical shit? It's very heavy on philosophizing for a first issue. Right. Yeah. He says not my scene way too many times. Mm -hmm. 
I thought the art was a little scratchy. It kind of works for the kind of chaos of the Magic War. Yeah, and the sort of brilliant watercolor colors of the Magic War are pretty effective. Yeah, but yeah, I, I thought the story, I thought the plot itself was tight enough and interesting enough. You know, I thought having Chaz basically spend his entire life in misery and then die all because of John was a bit heavy-handed, but mostly I liked the plot. Mm -hmm. It's the art and the voice of Constantine that I just couldn't really get next to. Okay, okay. But this being a Heishan, what did you think? I have some issues with the plot, actually. It's okay. It's very eventy. You know, it starts with Constantine in the future, and he's not just having his mystical adventures. He's back in the past to prevent the bad future that he saw. Right. It has it has much more of a drive, I feel like, than than the Constantine series that we have seen. And that's in keeping with the tone generally of Sandman universe. Particularly I'm remembering like Lucifer begins with Lucifer captured and and the whole thing is about how he gets his memories and his powers back. Right. So, you know, it it's a change. It it doesn't super bother me, but it bothers me a little. I'm not a huge fan of Chaz denouncing John and dying. You know, and I realize that, that Hellblazer, to some extent, is misery and, and reality ensuing, but it seems like there are rules you don't break, lines you don't cross, and one of them is that Chaz is going to remain alive and more or less loyal to John. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. There's an ongoing Timothy Hunter book right now, isn't there? There was when Sandman Universe launched, at least. I don't think any of those Sandman Universe books have been canceled. Maybe okay. I'm wrong about that. But yeah, I wonder if we were reading that, how how this would feel different. Right. John himself is not clear on whether the future he experienced is an alternate universe or not, so there's plenty of room to, to magic away the fact that those events occurred in the future. Yeah. But I did enjoy some of the more specific Hellblazer mythos references, particularly the reference to Kit. Yeah. Love not... Kit. Love whenever yeah. Kit comes up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Love the invocation of Garth Ennis. Not my favorite Hellblazer story overall. Well, we'll come back to the perennial question of, hey, Sean, read this. Will you read issue number two? Or do you think there's a way that you will find yourself reading the trade of this? I'm not excited to read Hellblazer number two. And here's the problem. Either it's going to be a direct continuation of this story, in which case I'm not that hooked by it, or it's just going to be an adventure. Or it's in which just case, be a random episode. Yeah, but, in which case, but written by Simon Spurrier. In which case, all this setup goes counter to what we're seeing, and 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 we're, we've been we've been programmed not to care about random bullshit. Yeah, because <laughs> there's big stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I actually kind of think that the best thing it could do is be like a a random Jamie Delano style John Constantine mystery john constantine case okay. except written by simon spurrier mm, okay like but i don't know if simon spurrier is really capable of thinking small enough for that you know that's an interesting way of putting it and i feel like when the mage war starts happening on the first couple of pages there's a very spurrier feel to the way it's like he must have written down a bunch of wild shit is happening <laughs> for his artist <laughs> right well okay there you have it. Uh, so there is a Hellblazer ongoing, and it's being written by a good British author, and it's under the closest thing there is to a Vertigo label, so I'm I'm sorry to say that I don't recommend it. 
All right. Join us in our next Transmetropolitan episode while we finish out this story arc. As inspiration strikes Spider Jerusalem up on the roof. But first, join us next week for the premiere of Lucifer, the ongoing series, as Lucifer is dealt a six-card spread. Vertiguise is written and performed by Eric and myself. Our theme song is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. I produce the show, and Eric handles the social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguise.blueberry.com. That's spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. Yeah, that's right. And if you like Sandman or Preacher, those are series we covered in their entirety earlier in the podcast. In the past. In the before time. (laughs) Send us questions. Send us prompts for what you want to hear. The email is vertiguys at gmail.com. You can get at me on Twitter. That's at vertiguys. And you can reach me at blankcastshown. We've got a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. Whatever podcast app you're listening to us on, go ahead and give us a positive rating or review if you like. Certainly helps other people to find the show, and we appreciate it. And if you leave us a positive review on the Apple Podcast app, we will be happy to read it on air. Yeah, we will also read emails on air if you let us know that that's something that you want, and you send in an email. Do you want something that you wrote said in this voice? Well, it had better not be very racist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have to draw some lines here. There are rules. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Gotham City. Police Commissioner Gordon's office. So you see why we called, Batman. This riddle's got us stumped. What enormous party makes all the dough? I can't make heads or tails of it myself. I'm sure that's what the Riddler is counting on, Chief. But I know exactly where this clue leads. Meanwhile, at the offices of Stovepipe Cookware, company president J.P. Stovepipe is in a hurry. Oops, sorry. Hold my calls, Rosemary. I'm heading to the convention center. But you skipped breakfast and lunch. You must be starving. No time. The expo opens tonight. Once we grease the walkway up there, Batman will fall inside and never get out. But Riddler, how can you be sure no one else already fell in there? Only the world's biggest klutz would go into a giant mixing bowl if he wasn't following a clue. This giant mixer isn't mentioned anywhere in the show plans. It must be some sort of, whoops, the walkway, greased. <laughs> J.P. Stovepipe, what are you doing in here? Oh, I don't really know. During setup, I was wondering what the mixer was doing on the show floor, and when I leaned over the edge, I just fell in. I would never do something like that normally, but I was so hungry. Your clumsiness proved just the thing to get us out of this trap. I'd never have been able to climb these super smooth walls. Batman climbs the man. Riddler, I've been meaning to ask you, what kind of winged creature loves its cage? (sighs) A jailbird. Mr. Stovepipe, I've been worried sick. I brought you your favorite treat. Oh, I'm feeling better already. You're a klutz when you're hungry. Snickers. (laughs) Did I tell you my favorite part of the Frank Langella Dracula movie? No. So, my favorite part is, and like, I think you have to understand, as background, Yes, you have to understand that like, Frank Langella in this movie is a, is a beautiful man. He's not old Frank Langella. Yeah, like, I, well I noticed that in the pictures that you sent me. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's just like, his clothes and hair are perfect, and he's just like, a sexual magnet, and he just draws in every woman in the film.
Like, they're just, and he just wants to seduce everybody, you know? Like, he just walks in and he's like, bring to me, you know, every lady. <laughs> okay. But there's this part where, like, he walks into the room and Van Helsing is looking in this huge mirror. And so Dracula, just super cash, just picks up a bottle and chucks it at the mirror and smashes it. <laughs> and he's like, apologies, professor. I dislike mirrors. They're playthings of man's vanity. <laughs> It's like, what a power move that is. Can you disagree with, like, a guy who fucking walks into someone else's house and just breaks their shit? <laughs> and is like, yes. well, I, I did it because of philosophy. <laughs> Whilst his own hair and clothes are perfect. <laughs> yeah. And he's just standing there and he's like, the man is fucking statuesque. <laughs> No, no, you see, it's it's man's vanity that can't be tolerated. Dracula's not really a man. Right. Vampire vanity is fine. A-okay. 